Hello, I'm Alex Rockkeen. I'm a barrister at Third Man Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined, uh, well, in the in the evening, my time uh, in the shed and in the morning, Australian time, uh, by Dr. Piers Gooding. Um, anyone who's ever heard or seen one of these before will know that I really don't like uh, introducing my guests. I much prefer um, them to introduce themselves. So, Piers, over to you. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. Good evening, Alex. Good morning. Uh, I'm uh, a research fellow at the University of Melbourne Law School here, and uh, it's a beautiful crisp morning in Melbourne. There's uh, some balloons in the sky at the moment, and people were coming out of the swimming pools as the sun was rising on my way to the office. Uh, so I'm really pleased to be here. Um, as I said, I'm in the law school um, and I'm a researcher here, but I'm also doing some teaching. So I teach uh, disability human rights law here at the uh, University of Melbourne, uh, as well as health law, ethics related subjects. Uh, my background is uh, as actually a socio-legal researcher uh, with uh, undergraduate studies in history uh, and then a PhD in law. So I've sort of taken a roundabout path into a law school. Uh, and really look at the law in the context of, well, social life and political life. Uh, and, and my focus on disability has, has very much drawn me into that socio-political uh, area. So I've been researching for the last 10 years since I finished my PhD on matters related to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Uh, and I've had a particular interest, I suppose, in mental health legislation, um, what's called guardianship law here, but is increasingly being described as capacity law internationally, uh, and all matters related to legal capacity, including in the criminal law context. It's taken me um, to some yeah, excellent places, and I've been able, fortunate enough to work at the um, Centre for Disability Law and Policy in uh, Galway and at the National University of Ireland. Um, and have collaborated with colleagues over in the um, EU and in the UK. So it's uh, excellent to be speaking with you, Alex, and yeah, looking forward to the discussion. Brilliant. Well, thank you. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, well, thank you again for joining us, especially tearing yourself away from the balloons. But um, I mean, it's really your work in particular in, in relation to the, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which kind of drew us into the same space as it were and, and I'm going to put a link to the, the brilliant book you did on it um, I mean just because it's such a helpful useful book thinking through the kind of new era in mental health law and policy it's just a, to me is one of the best books out there on terms of thinking about what the convention is seeking to achieve and then how people are responding to it and sort of how people are navigating how they feel about it but I just kind can, can I actually I just start with kind of what led you to write that book and sort of what what what's the main lesson it's not kind of spoiler please everyone should go and read it but sort of what's the main message that you're wanting to kind of relay in it well i mean recalling that i started writing it in 2010 um the lay of the debate or the lay of the land regarding the convention was quite different to what it is now yeah um, at that time i think um people were starting to grapple with maybe the incommensurability of the CRPD itself and the um, existing mental health legislation that was generally considered to be uh, quite a progressive area of, um, of law, really, or uh, these more advanced so-called rights-based uh, mental health laws were seen as 
really the best of a of a sort of a challenging bunch of, of of laws concerning what to do in the event that um, someone is having an extreme sort of mental health crisis. I suppose you might describe it as. So really, I was a part of a group of people, um, including my supervisors, uh, Professor Bernadette McSherry and Professor Penelope Weller, who, who some of your listeners will, will be aware of, who were looking at well, what does it mean that the CRPD has come along and challenged in particular the um, idea that people um, in a mental health crisis or with mental health diagnoses or experiencing mental illness are somehow um, exceptional under the law uh, and are um, justifiably detained and treated against their wishes or, or without consent. The CRPD came along and really challenged that. And um, there was this growing literature on what, what precisely to do uh, to, to resolve this um, tension. Uh, and probably the most promising concept, I think, that came out that was maybe offering a way through the, the thicket was supported decision-making. Yeah. Um, decision-making, something you've written a lot about and, and which um, I'm sure your listeners will be aware of, but it uh, offers this idea of autonomy with support. Uh, and it was the idea that was a, a driving force behind Article 12 of the Convention, over which so much uh, ink has been spilt, gallons and gallons of it. Um, yeah, I hate to think of the servers somewhere in the world that have dealt with all of the writing that's been going on over the internet about Article 12, but the Convention uh, really challenged uh, people who are working in mental health legislation to come up with ideas around how decisions could be supported during those moments of emergency and crisis, which characterise the um, decision-making that goes on in psychiatric wards all over the world and um, in, in, in difficult situations in people's homes uh, and amongst people's families about what on earth to do to address um, some acute crises that are occurring. I wanted to elaborate on what supported decision making means so I tried to look for examples from all over the world about how this might work um, to try to lay out the debate as clearly as possible because I think mm -hmm. in 2010 there was a lot of uh, misunderstanding about what was being asked for um, and so there were some articles that were coming out that I think really um, were mischaracterizing what the CRPD was aiming for um, and um, I wanted to lay it out as clearly as possible to help people to, I suppose, make up their own mind. Um, I mean, that bit, just to pause for a second, I think that's in a way almost the, the thing I find most helpful about that book, and I know my students find almost most helpful, is that clarity of the laying out of the debates. And it's that aspect there. And, and as it were, being faithful to what the CRPD is seeking to achieve, as opposed to I'm going to spin it in a way which meets my own agenda. Yeah, and I'm sure some people might criticise me for doing so and say that it's sort of, you know, um, frustratingly neutral or or something along those lines. But I think toward the end of the book, I really um, come to my conclusion, and I, I think uh, other people will will disagree with me. And I, I don't think my conclusion in the final chapter is really the main um, takeaway from the book. I think trying to lay it out as clearly as possible is probably the main takeaway, so that people can come to their own ideas. Um, but I, I ultimately decide that really supported decision-making is going to be most useful outside of mental health legislation altogether. And it is hard to reconcile the aims of mental health legislation as this distinct area of law that only applies to people in 
mental health crisis and allows for the sort of um, uh, restraining of these rights on the limiting of these rights on on autonomy and and um, deprivation of liberty um, such that it, it's just not possible really to have supported decision making within a framework that seems to be against the basic tenets of Article 14 um, and 12 of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Now, I don't want to go into the weeds for, for, for our purposes here because I don't think that's the aim of our discussion. You may want to take it there, but really my, my, my point was trying to lay it all out. And I think the terrain has shifted somewhat um, since writing that book that was published in 2014 or 15 or no, 17 now, but I wrote it around 2014 yeah. and 15. Um, and 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 happily, I think it's shifted because I think now people are really taking seriously supported decision making. People are taking seriously these aims to reduce uh, coercion and and even eliminate uh, forms of coercion in the mental health context and the broader disability context. So, I'm I'm glad to see the terrain has shifted. Um, some people were probably quite frustrated by the lack of developments in mental health legislation because even though it's been almost um, what, 15 years since the convention, um, I, I've, got, I've got to say that the, the character of mental health legislation, at least in high-income countries like uh, Australia and the UK, hasn't really changed a great deal. There are some provisions on supported decision-making and the like, um, but I, I haven't seen major change. But you may have a different view, Alex. What do you think? Yeah, well, no, I, I, I'm going to, in a way, resolutely try not to answer any questions because I want the focus to be on you. But no, I think it's I think it's right to say that the tenor of legal reform in the mental health zone is very much, as it were, Fabian in the sense of moving with, you know, placing greater weight on, say, decision making capacity, which is an issue which has its own complexities within the kind of CRPD zone, but seeking to make make it more difficult, I suppose the way one way of putting it is making it more difficult to do things against people's capacitors will, as opposed to saying you just can't, which is, you know, the kind of, as it were, the, 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 the hard line, if that's what one wants to put it, but the kind of, the CRPD message is you can never do something against anyone's, against someone's will. I suspect the, the most mental health reform and certainly the stuff I've you know, had direct personal experience of is just make it much more difficult and require people to jump through many more hoops, mm. partly based on kind of nudge theory that if you just make it more difficult, then good people, good psychiatrists who actually generally actually want to work with the grain of the people mm. they're trying to help, well, that's no difficulty for them. The, the psychiatrist who finds that more challenging is just going to have a more difficult life, Indeed. which is very unglamorous and unsexy. But there is a school of thought which thinks that might be more, might lead somewhere more concrete than, as it were, a big bang where people are saying just, as it were, abolish everything and people sort of get frightened at that point. Indeed. I think we could characterise the reform as incremental and sometimes those incremental changes that are attempting to effectively narrow the instances in which um, some form of coercion can be used have been done in ways that aren't always um, overt uh, and, and and indeed may may be simply seeking to create more steps that are required for some kind of involuntary intervention to occur. And I think that's sort of a legitimate reform path. I don't think it's sort of, um, you know, reform by um, a sneaky sort of um, a deception. Um, I, 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 I do see value in that and, and, I, and I, I think it's a legitimate form of um, 
an attempt to reform the system. But um, yeah, we haven't seen those large um, changes to, say, legislative text um, that have fundamentally altered the purpose of mental health legislation. And some people have argued for that. And indeed, in my book, I, I suppose I argued in the final chapter that we could potentially reform mental health legislation to only focus on the provision of positive um, um, voluntary support uh, and, and then, I suppose, put a mandate uh, on, on the state to, um, to adequately fund and provide uh, the kinds of supports that people want. Now, I don't think that's really gotten anywhere, but um, at the very least, some of those mechanisms for um, promoting um, positive rights to the highest quality health, I think, are starting to make some headway. Uh, and I think you, you're starting to see a change in the tenor of mental health legislation toward promoting those positive rights and ensuring uh, voluntary supports. Uh, and I think that's an area where you get more consensus um, although those who are calling for a hard line um, would be uh, entirely dissatisfied with that, I think. But I suppose that's that's another part of the debate that's ongoing. Yes, I mean, one of the interesting things is, I mean, it, it, it always, always struck me when I was working on our mental health Act review is, in a way, how deeply problematic the name the Mental Health Act, which is the name in England and Wales, it is. It is it's not really a mental health act at all. It's an act about, as it were, the regulation of coercion. If it was... A true mental health act, it would be an act designed to support people's mental health, which would then very much go into exactly the sort of positive rights people would say, I've got a right against the state to demand or require that the state provide me with the support that I need. And I think you're, I mean, speaking for myself, I think you're right that there's like, for many people, they'd be much easier to have a consensus around, well, why can't we provide the support people need in the community? So we're not having to have as we're recourse to detention. Indeed. And a, um, a concrete example of that is uh, a development here in Victoria, in Australia, where I am, um, in, in the renaming of a Mental Health Act uh, from 2014 as the Mental Health and Wellbeing Act uh, of 2022. Now, some people might be concerned, well, that just sort of um, continues to veil what's really going on, as, as you describe. Um, but at the very least, the intention behind the renaming and various substantive changes that I could I could go into uh, is to is to try to emphasise what is required in order to promote the well-being of Victorians, uh, and that includes you know quality, accessible, available services, um, and and ways to strengthen the mental health system. And and part of that, interestingly, in Victoria, which I haven't seen elsewhere, is a commitment from the government. Uh, which is incorporated into the text of the Act itself to reduce and even eliminate um, certain forms of restraint and, and, um, and seclusion um, over the next 10 years. It remains to be seen what will uh, occur with that, how successful it will be, and there's been various sort of tussles between um, professional groups that have uh, involved in the provision of services, uh, but I, I suspect that's going to be uh, an innovation globally to, to watch. And there's currently a committee that's overlooking, uh, sorry, investigating the criteria by which people are uh, treated um, involuntarily and detained in hospital involuntarily. So, so there is movement in the direction that uh, I suppose we're, we're broadly referring to, um, but it's very much an incremental uh, 
process, at least in high income countries, though, as you've written about, um, there are some sort of developments in um, Latin America in particular, where uh, they've taken a bit of more of a big bang approach to um, legislative reform. Yeah, and I, I mean, just going back to that, I mean, the, the the other aspect of the work, which I, I sort of really want to get the chance to make sure I'm picking your brains about, because you've just written so interestingly and importantly about it, is, is the, the reduction in coercion, as it were, not the legislative side, but the kind of the tour de raison around the world looking, saying, well, what are people actually doing in terms of actually finding tools which can just lead to reduction in coercion without necessarily changing the kind of legal framework? And I just wonder whether you can sort of sketch out, mm. sketch out a picture there and sort of, you know, just give a sense. I mean, not we haven't, we haven't got time, but, uh, 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 but to sort of go through every single possible development, but just kind of sketch out the, you know, the direction of travel, which you're identifying from, from the work that you've done sort of since that book was, since the book was published in your, in your more recent work. Yeah, well, well, thank you very much for saying those kind words about the, the work. Um, and it relates, I think, to the, a, a report that was commissioned by the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, who was then Catalina Vendas. Um, and uh, that was around looking at alternatives to coercion, as we described it then, but maybe it's better described as preventing and reducing coercion. And some of the practical, applied uh, attempts to do so around the world and a search of the empirical literature on what has been successful, what hasn't been successful. And we combine that with a less formal um, grey literature review of efforts that were often undertaken by small groups, often led by people with lived experience of mental health systems and crises and involuntary treatment, uh, so that we had a broad picture of what was going on globally in efforts to reduce um, interventions. And it was partly because we saw that this intractable debate that is even occurring at the UN level around whether coercion is legitimate under the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability wasn't appearing to be resolved and mm -hmm. wasn't going to be resolvable in the, in the near future from our perspectives. Um, and so we thought, well, everyone seems to agree that coercion could be reduced and potentially eliminated, but actually very little is known about what is required to do so. Uh, and so we thought, well, this empirical literature is extremely important. And um, we, we we covered a lot of material. That's in a great report. Well, I, I think it's actually great. Not, not because it is I a great report. I can tell you it's a great report. So, yes. <laughs> It was co-written with Professor Bernadette McSherry, um, Kath Roper and Flick Gray, who I just uh, are authors that I really admire. And so I, I think it's great because of, of what we were able to achieve. Um, but, but I think it's quite useful in just sort of setting out in a concrete way what's going on. One of the things I was really struck by was how little um, applied research there was that explicitly sought to reduce and eliminate forms of coercion. And I find that particularly striking given that since this... Um, the 1980s and this sort of um, uh, attempt to create rights-based mental health legislation, there's always been this underlying principle that intervention should occur as in the, in the least restrictive way possible. So that's a principle, the least restrictive way possible. And yet there had been very little, if, if any, real concerted research effort going into what constitutes the least restrictive intervention and, and, and how... Um, interventions could be made less restrictive. 
Um, and and that can be contrasted with the the huge resources that have been investigated um, input into uh, other areas of mental health research. So I suppose our 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 survey also came with a plea to continue uh, a search for 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 what what works to really reduce uh, and even eliminate instances of coercion. And there are some really promising practices from all over the world. And so there's starting to be movement on that, and and you see that in uh, even in now sort of psych psychiatric forum uh, forums like uh, the World Psychiatric Association position statement on on alternatives to coercion. So I think the tide is shifting a little bit, um, and this idea of alternatives or ways to reduce and prevent um, coercion seems to me to be a, a useful, practical avenue to start to agitate some of the um, the divisions and the intractable tensions that we started to see emerge uh, after the convention. We're running short on time, which is just a shame because there's so much else I want to interrogate you about. I mean, to ask questions about, not least your, your work in relation to kind of uh, the digital world and mental health, the digitization of mental health. But I think as a can of worms, I'm going to keep closed for now, but invite people to go and do reading about, about your work there. But one thing I just, I mean, just really to sort of get you to project forward. I mean, based on the journey that you've seen, you know, from writing that book and then being involved in a report and then your more recent work sort of thinking about reduction or elimination in coercion broadly optimistic as to the direction of travel oh <laughs> it's very difficult to say i mean is, is, um, are many people optimistic at the moment i'm not sure oh, yes that's um, a very good question yes <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think so much of it seems to be wrapped up in in resource distribution, um, and and yeah. I think there's another conversation to be had about the contribution of sort of broad socioeconomic shifts like inequality to to um, ways that the mental health system operates um, that that we could we could dedicate a much much more discussion to, but. Look, I think I'm broadly optimistic because I'm starting to see this sort of domino effect where some some jurisdictions will appear to go a little bit further than the next, um, and 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 therefore uh, sort of shift the frame a little bit. So I, I am broadly optimistic, and and there is this wonderful network of um, activists and advocates and scholars all over the world, and, and and legal professionals and indeed medical professionals who I think are sort of committed to. Um, shifting the 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 frame and and I think it's I think it's working I think it's I think it's been incremental uh, but I but I do see these developments starting to take shape and 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 particularly that domino effect of one jurisdiction innovating and experimenting and then that being taken on by another I, I think is is a source of um, optimism um, yeah as long as maybe you don't look at the financial news and raise concerns about, you know, further austerity and disability and mental health yeah. services, which may very well undercut any kind of gains in, in, in legislation or, you know, in small pockets of innovation. But, you know, I think, yeah, I'm broadly optimistic, I've got to say. Well, before we manage to talk ourselves out of that optimism, I'm going to say thank you very much indeed, Piers. That's, it's, it really helped and covered so many aspects. And I'm going to put the on the links on, on the page on my website uh, underneath the talk, I'm going to link to your book and then and the report that you co-wrote with uh, Bernadette McSherry and others, just because they're really concrete, useful things for people who are wanting, as it were, to shift the frame and just move things that, even if it's just that bit, really concrete, really helpful stuff. 
So thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm a big fan of the podcast and I'm glad to uh, have joined you this morning. It was a great discussion. Thank you.